Hello and welcome to the Methinks podcast, where we have conversations about faith, history, sexuality, and ethics from the perspective of two Christian graduate students. My name is Joel. I'm a PhD student studying philosophy. My co-host is Maggie, who is a PhD student studying history. In the last episode, we made recommendations of articles and books that helped us begin to see the reality of racial injustice. I recommended Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, and Maggie recommended Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise. Just to be clear, we don't claim to be woke, but we are waking up. And as part of standing with oppressed groups, we hope to get people thinking more and more about the reality of racial injustice. Thanks for joining us. All right. So my second recommendation isn't so much a particular book or resource, but a literature. Um, When I started learning more about implicit racial bias and the way that it impacts the employment of uh, Black Americans as compared to white Americans, that was really shocking. So just a quick definition, implicit bias is sort of discriminatory patterns or habits or tendencies that we're not explicitly aware of. We wouldn't maybe even explicitly endorse them if we thought about them. They just sort of happen under the hood of our thinking, right? That's what implicit bias is. It's not something you consciously entertain. It's unconscious. And there's a pretty massive literature in uh, social psychology and in sociology showing that implicit bias disproportionately impacts the hiring potential of Black Americans. So there's this really famous study, uh, and this has been replicated over and over in, in different contexts, where take an application for a job and make a copy of that application. So these are identical applications, and just change the name on one of these applications so that it sounds like a sort of stereotypical black name. So the first application will say something like John Smith and the second one will have a you know stereotypical black name and send these applications to different uh, businesses that are hiring. And you'll find that the applications with the predominantly or stereotypically white name will receive more callbacks than the application that has the stereotypical black name on it. And look, the idea here isn't that the hiring committee looks at the application and says, oh, this is from a black person, so let's not hire them. The idea is that there are these implicit, unconscious mechanisms that lead us to favor the application with the white sounding name over the application with the black sounding name. And so these sorts of things happen uh, widely and it's happening today. And what's interesting is that the data on this shows that this sort of implicit bias has not declined in the last 25 to 30 years. So there's a quote from the Harvard Business Review, which says that our results point, what our results point to is that at the initial point of entry, hiring decisions, blacks remain substantially disadvantaged relative to equally qualified whites. And we see little indication of progress over time. And what was really, I think, provocative about seeing this literature is that it, it opposes 
or resist this narrative we believe in America, namely the narrative of meritocracy, that anyone has just you know just as much of an opportunity as anyone else to make their way up the ladder of success, to have you know social mobility as it's called. But what this data is showing is that not everyone has the same chances, and these implicit biases in the hiring process disproportionately impact Black applicants for whatever reason. So it's just not true that everyone has the same chances of getting hired, that if you just put in enough effort, you'll get hired. Because someone who is you know, equally competent as you are for the job, but has a white sounding name could get the job over you. And so there's a, just a, a widespread kind of unfairness that creeps in to the employment and hiring process that I think is really concerning. And we need to be aware of this, but the, the, the major point is that this is part of what contributes to racial injustice and racial discrimination across the United States. It's not just like this is you know explicit racism happening. This is the kind of implicit discrimination that's really hard to see and really hard to target because we're unaware of it, but it's happening at a large scale according to this literature. So that was really, I think, challenging for me as I started seeing how widespread this sort of implicit bias was and how much it impacted the hiring potential of Black Americans. And I think one of the ways that that's really been convicting for me is I know that that plays a part in my own um, research and my own interactions with the world. Um, so for example, I was reading, and I cannot for the life of me remember who this was. Um, it might've been Jamar Tisby, perhaps Jasmine Holmes. Um, I've been reading a lot of both of them lately, but the, uh, the statement was uh, they had gone to seminary and the only time that black theologians had been quoted or talked about was as examples of what not to do. And that really got me thinking, can I actually say that there are any uh, black theologians that I turn to, right? And yeah, I'm really good on MLK quotes, right? I can pull out quite a few because I use them in classes all the time. Um, but as far as like his actual theological teachings or the, the like, and the fact that clearly the black church is thriving and yet I know so little um, from that message, right? And in my mind, it, it just kind of clicked. Like I have a bias. Like I just think I can't relate that the, those teachings aren't going to apply to my life, um, and that honestly, they might not be as good as that of the white theologians, because white theologians have been trained for centuries, as if that makes a difference in this generation, right? But that's my logic, right? When I really dig deep and realize that's what's going on. And so how important it is for us to kind of read these things and think about how is this actually playing a part in my life, in the way that I interact with my Christian brothers and sisters, specifically um, for me, and I, I think for a lot of our listeners, that's probably going to be a bigger concern, but just in life in general, certainly. All right. Um, so one thing, as Joel and I were talking about this episode, um, that got me thinking, because I, I do read a lot of American history, obviously, as someone who studies it, is there's so much, there are so many resources and so much uh, historical evidence. But what really breaks my heart is when I'm reading and I see an example, particularly in a book written by someone who is in no way whatsoever affiliated with Christianity, where they can call out the church as being the problem. And those for me hit home the hardest because when I can look back on the past and I can see my own religious tradition being the problem and not looking at God's word and being called out and saying, hey, this is wrong. Maggie, I just have a clarifying question. You said the problem? 
um, someone might think, well, I'm sure the church wasn't the problem. They were perhaps part of the problem. Do you want to just clarify what you mean? Yeah. I mean, I think there are plenty of historical examples where you can look back and say, no, no, no. In this example, the church was the problem. Um, And those are the ones that really, like those historical examples of preachers who are, you know, actually saying from the pulpit things that are not only encouraging a cultural misconception or a cultural prejudice, but actually creating new ones. That's the problem. And that really hits home for me. So one example of that would be um, Baptized by Blood, which is an older book, actually. It was written in the 1980s, um, and it was republished in the early um, 21st century, I think maybe 2009. And the reason for it is because it makes the argument about the lost cause narrative, which is probably something you might have been hearing about. It's a very academic phrase. Um, But because of the Confederate statue monument controversy that's wrapped up in all of this right now, it's a very important thing to understand, which is that the South, after the Civil War, kind of recreated a nostalgic past for themselves that not only reimagined slavery as something good and idyllic, but also made very specific moral arguments about um, enslaved persons. So Maggie, when was this happening? That's exactly the question to be asking, because what's so interesting about this is that it wasn't immediately after the Civil War, but instead this is something that's being constructed in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, This is actually an increasing thing throughout the 20th century. Again, we see this uptick um, in patterns that I think are really problematic. And it was actually Confederate women's groups that really led the charge, which adds a different dynamic of complicity, uh, if you ask me. So it's a hard history to read. And I think that the reason that I like um, Baptized by Blood and I recommend it so strongly is he really does talk a lot about the religion of the lost cause narrative and how much religious figures factored into creating this. Um, So I'll give you just one example from his book, because I think it is important that we look at what exactly we're talking about. Um, And he talks about a lot of different things in all of the the chapters. But one thing he said is how the ministers themselves um, were complicit or responsible for arguing that morality was a good component of slavery. That, And this is, again, after the Civil War. They made the argument that because formerly enslaved persons had been free, they were now more immoral because there had been a good moral influence of slavery upon this population. And so one of the ways that they helped reinforce that is by arguing during the Civil War, there had been many loyal enslaved persons, right? That they had actually fought for the Confederacy out of loyalty, out of the goodness that existed in that system. And As an example that is very relevant today, as far as monuments go, um, we have an example of this in a monument that wasn't erected until 1937, which was a monument to a slave who refused to take part in the um, attack on Harper's Ferry. Now, we think of Harper's Ferry as this great moment, right, where it was like, hey, the slaves are rebelling, they're grabbing the arms, they're going to like gain their freedom. And here, again, 1937, that is generations after the Civil War, you have a monument being built to the one slave who refused. And this is the quote that they put on that monument. All right. 
Memorial to Hayward Shepherd, exemplifying the character and faithfulness of thousands of Negroes who, under like temptation throughout subsequent years of war, so conducted themselves with no stain was left upon a record. I'm sorry, that no stain was left upon a record, which is the peculiar heritage of the American people and an everlasting tribute to the best in both races. So the best of that race were those who refused to fight for their freedom. And that kind of attitude is part of the memorialization of Confederate, like the Confederacy, the less lost cause narrative. And so I think what's being obfuscated in the debate today about Confederate monuments is that, oh, hey, this is our past. This is our history. And I think what Baptized by Blood does so well is it clearly shows that this is a constructed history. This is not about objective facts. This is clearly trying to represent the South and particularly um, the system of slavery in a very specific, honorable fashion. And that, I think, is a problem. And the the role that ministers, true believers, I, I do think that they actually were believers, played in that is so convicting for me because it just, it does give you pause and it makes you think, okay, what are we doing now that's going to be looked back on? And I don't think we need to constantly be worried about how history is going to remember us at all. But I do think, particularly in this moment, there were other ministers arguing the opposite. So it's not that other people aren't pointing out the hypocrisy of this or pointing out how unscriptural it is. They just weren't listening. So again, how important it is for us as believers to be listening, because there are going to be ways the Holy Spirit moves in the lives of other people to convict us when we are allowing this kind of narrative of uh, racial superiority in any way to imbue our theology. And so that would be, I think, a very important book to read, to process for people. And again, I'm not saying that this book is without flaw. All books have flaws. But as you read, it's going to be so clear how this was constructed over time in the South. Yeah. Do we know, I'm sure we do, do we know what some of the response was even within the South to these monuments, to these these like teachings in the church about racial superiority? I mean, there are definitely other histories that have been written, um, particularly of the black churches um, and movements where people fought against this. You have organizations that were organizing against this kind of memorialization, um, certainly. So there was pressure against it. Um, but we also have very much so a regional divide, right, uh, between the North and the South, which makes this history a controversial and complicated one, because you have historians who are themselves Southern, who have been trying, um, and I shouldn't say that necessarily in the present tense, but in the past, particularly the late 20th century, um, who wanted to remember the South in a very honorable kind of way, which makes sense, right? Um, you want to have your you know, your heritage should be remembered well, and you want to remember what's good in the past. And there's something good to that, right? We shouldn't look back and only see what's wrong. Um, the problem is, however, is when by doing that, by trying to look at both um, the good and the evil of the past, when you actually create good when there wasn't any, and then suddenly that becomes the history you have to tell. So the statues were erected in the early 20th century, as late as the 30s, you were saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the histories, the sort of 
aggrandizement. So one of the things is that um, when we look at like the start of this lost cause narrative and and the reason that Confederate women's organizations were really a big part of it is that they started by wanting to um, recognize the dead from the Civil War. So during the Civil War, a lot of Confederate soldiers who fell in battle were buried in mass graves. And they did not have any kind of marker, right? And regardless of what side they were fighting on, right, that hits hard, right? Like you're like, oh, like we should remember our dead. That's someone's son, right? Um, And so they wanted to create cemeteries. They wanted to rebury the dead and memorialize them in a proper fashion. So again, the intention originally was very honorable and very understandable. And I think um, there's a lot of virtue to that. What it became um, as it developed in the late 19th century and then the early 20th century, and particularly these examples um, that Wilson brings out in his book, I think are um, clear evidence that this was about reestablishing a racial hierarchy. And it was part and parcel of the Jim Crow South. And so there is a specific historical context to the Confederate statues that we have to understand in order to really get to the bottom of this debate that we have currently. Yeah, that's so interesting. Do we have any idea of how prevalent that history was in, say, like high school curriculums or like college curriculums? No, oh, absolutely. I mean, it's in the textbooks. You can there's there's been studies, and you can look into this kind of thing. Um, you just look up the history of the lost cause, and see the difference between southern textbooks and northern textbooks in the late twentieth century. Um, this has been the subject of academic study, uh, just the rhetoric of the war as well. Um, it's not unheard of for the Civil War to be referred to as the War of Northern Aggression. Um, that would be another example of. Did you say the late twentieth century? Yeah. So, like, really recent. Oh, yeah. Like 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. Absolutely. Um, And so I'm I'm sure there might even be people who are listening who are like, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard the war of Northern aggression. I've heard um, the arguments about uh, the goodness of the Confederate soldiers. And again, I'm not saying that some of them weren't honorable men, but to highlight that above and beyond. And again, my big thing here is when you really look at the broader movement of the lost cause even if a few of those statues stand apart, right? Like the really prominent generals who we can say, oh, well, they really were fighting for their state, et cetera, et cetera. You also have these examples, right? Where you have clear problems. Um, Another internal debate dealt with in the same chapter that I just quoted from um, was whether or not they should erect a monument to the faithful slave, like literally to the kind of Uncle Tom. Um, And that was shot down by one of the leaders of the Confederate women's group because she was upset that supposedly a a local woman had just been slaughtered by, in her words, a black fiend. And how could we ever memorialize any black person in a statue, right? So the kind of overt racism that was clearly a part of this, I think, cannot be ignored. And it does change the debate. And to have these statues in places of really prominent areas without any kind of counterbalance. So for example, there's a movement um, to, oh goodness, what is the name of that? Um, The Equal Justice Initiative. They're actually um, trying to create more monuments to lynching victims in these areas because that too 
is a part of that history. And absolutely, if you're going to make the argument that you can't take down the Confederate statues because we need to remember history, then we need to be erecting other monuments to show other historical facts about this struggle. Um, And so I think that there's a lot of nuance to that debate. But to really understand that debate well, and I think also to understand the church's place in it, um, baptized by blood is a good place to start. Thanks for joining us on the Methinks podcast. A little bit more about what we're up to here. Our journey as Christians, graduate students, and budding scholars regularly leads us to explore questions about ethics, sexuality, history, and faith. The Methinks podcast is an invitation for you to join us in that journey, to thoughtfully engage and wrestle with these questions alongside us. See you next time.